Last night, we received official confirmation beyond any shadow of a doubt that your mother and I are empty nesters. You know, it's one thing for the, for the chicklets to leave the nest. It's another thing to list, live as if they're gone, they'll never be back, and you move to this next stage of life. So when you guys were younger and you learned how to drive and you'd be gone wherever and it was dark and we went to bed, <clears throat> we'd lay in bed and didn't really do this consciously, but we'd lay in bed and couldn't really sleep well. And then, and then we'd hear the garage door open. It's kind of down below the bedroom. Garage door would open. And there was something in the, in the body of a parent that goes, Phew. okay? And you hear that they didn't hit the garage as they came in. <laughs> and you do a further, Phew. And I'm not kidding. I can't tell you how many times from the time the garage door opened to the time the child was in the kitchen, I was already asleep, all right? It, it would happen that fast that that's all I needed to do was hear the garage door. I knew you were home. I could go to sleep. So Nate's home for the weekend and obviously staying with us. And, and so it's been, it's been weird kind of have, you know, you're laying in bed, you're hearing noises and whatever. I'm like, oh, you got to kind of acclimate to this again. There, there are people in the house. So he went somewhere last night and came home and and again, proof that I'm officially empty nester, I wasn't waiting for a garage door noise. I mean, I was just dead out, sound, boom, stone cold, asleep. And so was your mom. And so I'm sleeping, and I wake to this. I'm like, what in the world? I look over. Nate has always had this fantastic habit of coming in at night. Mom, I'm home. So he came in, Mom, I'm home. And some <laughs> demonic groan came out of your mother that scared, scared everything for 10 blocks. I mean, I just, but, but then this is where it gets really weird. I should have, I should have woken weird up and immediately. No, <laughs> well, I should have immediately been in battle mode, right? My, my wife is screaming, who's there? What you doing? I wake up, I'm like, huh. <laughs> what was that noise? And, I, and all I hear Nate say is, I'm never doing this again. <laughs> and then it was hard to fall back to sleep because I was laughing for the next hour. It was fantastic. It was, uh, parenting is the best, as you will soon learn. It yeah. is just uh, so much, so much fun to be had. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's awesome. It's amazing. So it's great to have him home. Yeah. And it was fun to have all of you over Friday night. I mean, it was just yeah. a fun time. Yeah, it was. Uh, <clears throat> so we had the, Shanahan held the, the Forte 5K in support of Shanahan Music Boosters on Saturday. So I, Got a couple of the, the kids to come run, and so we had fun. But I was like, I'm not going to leave, you know, I'm not going to leave your house at 10.30 at night and then only to turn around and have to do that same drive early in the morning. So I stayed over at your house for the first time since, I think, moving out. Probably. Uh, which, was, Probably. which was an experience. And I promise, I, like, I will never, I will never do the scare, <laughs> walking and scare you. Um, Walking is it was fun. Oh, yeah. good, to, good to have him home. So, yeah, it's, it's, I, I'm, I don't want to forget this, and I'm, I'll mention it again at the end, but it's just really important. As you're driving out today, please make sure that you catch the beautiful color of the trees that are just across the street. Uh, it's just, oh, my word, they're, they're brilliant, and I promise you, next week they won't be there. The end of October is about here, you know, we're, we're getting down to it, and, and even uh, October coming, so like, what's, student-wise, what do you have coming up here in the near future? Yeah, uh, so we have a lot, of, a lot of fun stuff that we normally do annually, 
uh, in November and in December. And so I, I can't believe I'm saying this, but like we're already setting up some plans for our Thanksgiving dinner and our, our Turkey Day football game, things like that that will all be... I will not be playing this year. <laughs> you mean... I'd you love mean, to, but on your on your healthy knee now. <laughs> now, that, now that I'm repaired, I'll just I'll sit in my just little chair on the sidelines. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> cheer. Woo. Well, we, we have those things coming up, um, and we got some cool stuff coming with Refuge too. So we'll announce that to the kids. Um, I have made a great effort to not send out too many reminds because um, I I know that like getting bombarded with messages all the time. Sometimes like when you actually have to send something that's important, it just gets treated like anything else. So I do my best not to send anything unless there are big updates. There are going to be some big updates coming. So if you're not on Remind, get signed up for that. Uh, and I, I do want to throw out a big thanks to, to parents this weekend. About 20 minutes before group ended, I, I talked too long on Wednesday night. And so about 20 minutes before group ended, I, I sent out a Remind saying, hey, our kids are probably going to be out a little late. You know, the small groups are going to leave a little late. Um, and to, to my knowledge, there were no, no major issues. Um, so thank you. Thank you again. I know that Wednesday night, 8.30, like it, that's late for a junior hire, and it's late for you coming to pick them up. So thank you for, uh, for helping us with that. Uh, I promise I won't talk too long too often. <laughs> Guy, guys did their axe throwing, knife throwing last night. That yeah. Was fun. Yeah, heard all about <laughs> that. And uh, I was checking, you know, Bob made the target, and... I, I checked his fingers this morning. As of right now, I mean, they've only used it once, uh, but he still has all of his digits. All intact. All awesome. the digits. So very, that's, very good. that's a good very thing. Very good. Uh, and Michael Kuchar said that he, as he was throwing, it only bounced, the, the axe only bounced back at him two times, which is two, two times more than you wanted <laughs> to that's bounce back at reassuring. you. Reassuring. Yeah. <laughs> you don't want axes chasing you down. Uh, but yeah, so that, that's definitely something that, uh, that we're going to be pulling out and using. Um, so thanks to the crew that, that did that, and yeah, a lot of fun. Good deal, good deal. I'd like to go ahead and turn uh, toward communion and toward our scripture passage this morning. So if you would get the Bible, we're going to be we're going to be looking this morning at, at John chapter 13. Um, over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at the topic of serving, and, and we're looking at it <clears throat> kind of in a I'll call it in a rethink way. I'm just kind of looking at, looking at serving the way we promote it and uh, serving the way we try to get people involved in serving along the way. And some areas that, um, that we've done, just like other churches, that uh, may have led to great volunteer recruitment, and at the same time, uh, I don't know that they line up beautifully with what's going on in this passage. So I'd like to read this, and, and as we do, um, just kind of listen to, this is about Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Uh, Think through, if you can, as Brian's reading it, the, the tension of the moment. There, there's, great, there's great tension. There are, in fact, there are a lot of different threads of tension throughout this passage. Go ahead and read for us. Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his Father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them until the very end. It was time for supper, and the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything, and that he had come from God and would return to God. So he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that he had around him. Jesus came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, 
Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you don't understand now what I am doing, but someday you will. No, Peter protested, you will never ever wash my feet. Jesus replied, unless I wash you, you will belong to me. Simon Peter exclaimed, then wash my hands and my head as well, Lord, not just my feet. Jesus replied, a person who has bathed all over does not need to wash, except for the feet, to be entirely clean. And you disciples are clean, but not all of you. For Jesus knew who would betray him. This is what it meant when he said, not all of you are clean. After washing their feet, he put on his robe again and sat down and asked, Do you understand what I was doing? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, because that's what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth. Slaves are not greater than their master, nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. Now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them. I'm not saying these things to all of you. I know the ones I have chosen. But this fulfills the scripture that says, the one who eats my food has turned against me. I tell you this beforehand so that when it happens, you will believe that I am the Messiah. I tell you the truth. Anyone who welcomes my messenger is welcoming me. And anyone who welcomes me is welcoming the Father who sent me. This is one of those passages, I think, that um, we as Westerners have a hard time grasping. We, we, don't, we don't wash each other's feet. And, and so there's a piece of it that's a little lost on us. And even if we were to try to come up with some American equivalents, you know, in, in the winter a person comes into my house, I take their coat, I put it on a hook or in a closet. No, no, real, no real comparison there. So we will be taking time looking at the passage over the next couple of weeks to try to get a, a really good grasp on what foot washing was all about, the significance of, of foot washing. But I, I think that as, as you're reading that, you know, pieces of it are just evident on the surface that, that Jesus is gathered with this group of people, typically feet would have been washed, and there are 12 people sitting there, any of whom should have grabbed the basin and gone ahead and started doing the washing of the feet, and they didn't. And so Jesus did. And yet, when I read the passage, his motivation for doing that serving wasn't nobody else is doing what they're supposed to be doing, so I just have to do it. It, it begins by saying, having loved his own, he now loved them to the very end. And so he has this tremendous display of love as he's washing the feet of the disciples. And he's washing the feet of the one who is going to take those clean feet and go to the temple and say, this is where Jesus is, and go to the garden and betray him. It's just, it's mind-blowing, all the, all the different threads going on in here. Um, and then, of course, Jesus has this teaching moment of saying, I did this, you do this. This is one of the ways that you prove that, that I'm in you and you're in me. And, and so all of, this, all of this is happening, and of course, in this same context, we have Jesus taking the bread and taking the cup and saying, this is my body broken for you, this is my blood do this, drink it, in remembrance of me. So we're going to go to communion here. We're going to go to tables at the front and the back of the room. We have gluten-free on either side of the stage, a table in the back as well. 
But as you do, I want you to, I want you to just sit in a little bit of the tension of what, would have been, what it would have been like to be in that room that night. What would have it been like for Jesus to come to you, slip off your sandals, and wash your feet? Because he wants to serve in that way, and he wants to do it as an expression of his love. His death was an ultimate expression of love. And so we receive your love today, Lord Jesus. As we go to communion, we don't just do this as an obligatory moment in a service. Oh, we got to do communion. But we do it in a moment of reflecting on no one, no one has ever loved us more than the one who died to pay for our sins. We receive your love today. In Jesus' name. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for setting us free from our sins. Thank you for giving us eternal life and also a reason and purpose for living here and now. I pray that we will, on a daily basis, moment by moment, think about the love that we have been given and think about ways that we can show and express that love to the world around us. Help us to always live uh, like the moon to the sun, a reflection of you just reflecting you, reflecting your love constantly to a lost and dying world. In Jesus' name, amen. Long, long time ago, I used to receive on a, on a monthly basis a, a, a leadership lesson audio. It's long enough ago that it came in the form of a cassette. And I'd get out my Walkman, and I'd click it in, and I'd put my little foamy headphones on, and I'd either walk or run around the old neighborhood by the church, go by Terry Lennon's house, all the houses that were over there, wander on through that neighborhood. And uh, I'd listen to these leadership talks. It was by a prominent person. You'd recognize the name if I told you. And, um, and he had kind of a little bit of a southern drawl. And he'd always start the talks with, today I want to talk to you about. Today I want to talk to you about. And this particular evening, I was coming down the driveway, got to the end and started out over onto Black Road and, and, and he said, today I want to talk to you about I'm 50 and reflecting. And, and for the next 30 minutes, we got to hear from a man who in his mind thought he had reached kind of a pinnacle age in life and he was ready to look back and talk a little bit about what life had been like as a pastor and leader up to that time. Well, I'm already 10 past 15 and reflecting. I kind of missed that message altogether. But I will say this, I have a tendency not to just look at, you know, decade birthdays or something like that as a time to reflect, but I'm literally reflecting all the time. I'm always looking and asking, God, is this what you want us to be doing? God, what we did in the past, did, did we get that one right? Did we miss it? Is there a better way to do it? What, you know, all those sorts of things. I like to reflect and ask that question. And I reflect on it in part because I know that there will come a time that my generation won't be here anymore. I don't mean to be morbid, okay? I mean, yesterday we were, we were thinking about the fact that it was five years since Kim's dad died. When, when, when your dad's around, you're like, he'll be here forever. And then one day they're not. One day they're not. And a generation of people who led and served are gone. And I want to make sure that the next generation is well-equipped for leading, that it's not like, oh, they're gone, put a for sale sign out. But there's generation after generation after generation of Southfield, just like there were generations before us. 
And so I look back and ask the question, are, are there seeds we planted along the line in these decades? Are there seeds we planted that are good seeds? And I love the way they're growing. And are there seeds that we planted that we, we should uproot and get that weed out of here? Because we didn't get that one quite right. I think when it comes to theology and morality, we're spot on. Why? Because we follow the Bible. And the Bible does not change. And so if you follow the Bible, you don't have to worry that you missed it on that one. There it is. Thus saith the Lord, we say it too. Good. We're there. But sometimes in methodology, in action, in the way we do things together, there are pieces that we're, we're influenced by our culture and we don't even realize we've been influenced by it. What influences you? What are the things in your life that have, that have formed and shaped who you are? Some of them you're very aware of it. You're aware of where you went to school. You're aware of the house you grew up in. You're aware of the teachers you had. There are certain formal influences you had that you just know these are the things that shape the way I think or what I think or what I do. You're aware of those influences. But there are other influences that we just, we don't even pay attention to. They're just part of our environment. It's kind of like a fish in a bowl of water. They're, they're swimming and they're alive because they're in water. They have no awareness of the pH level. They have no awareness of, of how much chlorine is in the water or, or how much pollution or whether or not it should be changed right now. They just know they're swimming and they're alive. And I think there, there are influences in the water of our culture that have impacted us and we don't even realize, until we stop to think about it, we don't even realize the way we've been impacted. I have two primary theologies that have influenced the way I pastor. And, and they're not formal capital T theologies. They're small t theologies. One is one that came from my background growing up. Some of you have had a similar experience. Some of you have not. I call it a blue-collar theology. I grew up with a blue-collar theology. I grew up in a town, a city actually, of 40,000 people, halfway between Buffalo and Niagara Falls. And that place was as blue as blue a collar comes. I gotta admit to you, I did not like Halloween. Because every three years, my dad went to a union meeting on Halloween night to vote if whether or not they were going to strike. And I'd be passing out candy or collecting candy, wondering, will dad be going to work tomorrow? That was, that was part of the way life worked for me growing up. Everybody I knew was a hard-working laborer. They were people who worked in steel mills and, and the ironworks and the paper mill and chemical plants, and they, they all had tough hard, calloused hands. Everybody. Everybody was hardworking. Hardworking. You took pride in your work. And you worked your 40 hours, and you worked hard, and you worked well. Not necessarily because it was a job that brought you great reward and satisfaction and fulfillment. My dad did not find fulfillment watching steel bars work their way through a particular machine. They worked their way to Friday when they could get a paycheck so that they could eat and feed their family for yet another week. These are pieces of what influenced and formed not only who I am, but actually the way I pastor. I'm not afraid of hard work. You shouldn't be afraid of hard work. You shouldn't be afraid of putting your shoulder behind it. I remember more than once my dad commenting after he, had shake, sh after he shook my pastor's hand, wow, he has the softest hands. <laughs> I do not have soft hands. I have rough, calloused hands. That's part of my growing up. It's part of the way I lived. My dad also made this observation once. He, was, he and my mom were really good about, about being very positive, about talking about our pastors and our pastoral staff and all. But one day we're driving home, and the youth pastor had spoken that morning. 
And my dad was frustrated. He was just irritated driving home. And, and we didn't have to ask him why. He told us why. He said, I don't get it. Every time that guy speaks, I don't get it. He has to use a $35 word when a $2 word would do. And, and it's not that my dad wasn't smart. I would challenge that my dad has probably read more books than any other person in this room. He's an avid reader. He reads history. He's smart. He has great vocabulary. But he didn't agree that a person should go buy an education and then show it off. That you should be willing to talk in a way that other people can understand. And that impacted me. It impacted me that, you know, when you see a need, you jump in and you get involved in the need. You don't wait for someone else to do it. You don't hire it out. You just do the job. It's a blue-collar theology. That impacted me. May not have impacted you. Kim grew up in Bloomington Normal, Blono, Pinkies Up, totally different life. We were hard. We were, we were blue-collar, okay? Sorry. You're really getting beat around this morning. This is, who is this guy? He's really not nice. <clears throat> the other one that's impacted all of us is a baby boomer theology. We have been born and raised in the era of the baby boomer and the baby boomer being a leader. Even at this point, we still have a president that falls in the baby boomer category. We have had years and years and years of influence by baby boomers. And the baby boom started just shortly after World War II. It ended, I'm told, around 1965. I'm right at the tail end of it. My mom and dad are right at the very beginning of it. And you know the way this works. Sociologists, they love dividing us into all these things. So you had the, the builders, the World War II generation, the boomers, the busters, Gen X, Gen Y, Gen Z, millennial. Uh, it seems like now they're labeling generations by about three-minute segments. You know, they're just coming up with all these creative names all the time. But I think that that, that division of baby boomer, it was unique, and, and there's some characteristics of that generation that are unlike any other. I mean, you think about it for a moment. That generation is the first generation that did not have to fight through a major world war in many, in many, in many, uh, in many centuries. That's, that's kind of crazy. Not that they didn't have war, but you didn't have a major world war to fight. It was a generation that started being able to enjoy affluence, started to just be able to enjoy living. If you were farming, it wasn't because you were farming to feed your own family. You were farming because you owned a farm that was feeding many people. It, it, totally different era, totally different generation, enjoying abundance, being able to think in these terms, maybe I don't have to wait until 70 to retire, or 65, or 60, or even 55. Maybe I can retire at 50. That's unthinkable in previous generations. There's been an incredible affluence that's impacted the way the baby boomer generation lived and the way that they have impacted their world. It's one of the first generations that was able to say, not what will I do for a living in order to put food on my family's table, but what will I do for a living in order to find satisfaction and reward and fulfillment? And if I don't find it in this job, I'll quit that job and try another job. And I'll keep trying jobs until I find some reward and satisfaction and fulfillment. It's a generation, I think this is a positive thing, not a negative. It's a generation that, that is a little bit internal. They're willing to take some time to think about their motivation, 
to think about how they're wired and why they're wired. It's a generation that has enjoyed taking tests, lots of tests, lots of personality tests and everything else, test after test after test, to try to figure oneself out. These two theologies have impacted much of the way I pastor, but they've also impacted the way we do certain things around church. In particular, they've impacted the serve. They've impacted the way we get involved in serving and the way serving happens. And I want to make sure that the next generation knows that the baby boomer way of recruitment is not necessarily the Jesus way of recruitment. It's not necessarily the way that Jesus wants to get people involved in his ministry. So you see, you take those theologies and you have to ask yourself the question, it's interesting, that's what your life was as a blue-collar kid, but what does the Bible say? That's what the baby boom generation teaches or, or influences the world to be, but how does Jesus impact the world or think it should be? So we come to this passage that, John, that Brian read this morning, and we start reading about this particular serve, this particular moment of serving. It's the feast of the Passover here. Jesus knows he's about to die. And you have that beautiful line, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He knows that Judas has already been inspired to betray him and that he's about to go to the Father. And so it says he rises from supper. He rises from supper. He takes off his garment, takes off what he's wearing in the moment, lays it aside, wraps a towel around himself, he pours water in the basin, and one by one, he goes to person after person in the room, 12 people, 24 feet, and he washes them one at a time, washes foot after foot after foot around that passage. Now we have a little part that we'll look at in the week to come where, where Peter, uh, you know, does some serious talking. But then just beyond that, it says, when he washed their feet and put the outer garment back on, he resumed his place, and he says, do you understand what I've just done? I love this. He doesn't just do an object lesson and then leave it out there to hang. He wants us to understand. Because, because we might look at this and say, oh, Jesus saw that nobody was stepping up to the plate, so someone had to do it. Or maybe Jesus found tremendous reward and fulfillment in washing feet. I don't, he did, and so he did it. No, Jesus, Jesus makes real clear what's going on here. You call me teacher, you call me Lord. That's right, that's what I am. And if I, your teacher and Lord, washed your feet, if I, a person in authority over you, washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I've given this to you as an example to follow, and you should also do this just as I've done this for you. He says, truly I say to you, a servant is not greater than the master, messenger not greater than the one who sent them. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. He says, I want you to serve like I serve. I want you to serve the way I serve. And, and it's so important because when Jesus and the Bible are speaking, they don't just focus on methodology. They know anybody can ape great, great methodology. They focus on motivation. Why are you doing what you're doing? Now, a few observations about this passage. First, the moment was not convenient. It's not a convenient moment. His hour had come to depart to the Father. For a lot of us, when we get involved in serving, we wait until just the right time. I have a little extra time right now. Uh, things, things have shifted in my life a little bit. This would be a great moment to step into a serve. This would be a great moment to volunteer. This is the worst moment for Jesus. 
He knows he's about to die. I don't know about you. In your worst moments, I know in my worst moments, I use my worst moments as an excuse to be my worst. I'll be a little crabbier. I'll be a little shorter, whatever it is. And I have no problem saying, hey, I was crabby today. I'm sorry. It's just not a good time right now. For Jesus, it's not a good time. And what does he do? Just the opposite. That's the point he steps up and serves the people in the room. So the moment wasn't convenient. Further, there were undeserving people who were present. We read that it's during supper that the devil had already inspired Judas. He had already entered the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. I mean, you see him going around this circle washing feet. You kind of wonder why he didn't come to Judas and just say, you can keep your sandals on and go to the next person. But he didn't. He took the sandals off and washed the feet of the person who would take those clean feet and walk to the temple and walk to the garden. He cleaned the feet of his betrayer. It's unthinkable. For us, sometimes when undeserving people are present, we kind of go, I'll save my serve for later. These people will never understand fully the great thing I'm about to do for them. They don't deserve it. Judas didn't deserve it. He washed the feet anyway. Finally, we see from this passage, really, as an observation, he shouldn't have had to do this. He shouldn't have had to do this. Foot washing, again, we'll talk about it a little bit more, but it is a tradition that we don't understand in the Western world. If you entered someone's house and they said, take off your sneaks, I want to wash your feet, we'd, we'd oh man, I forgot something to jewel, see ya, <laughs> and we wouldn't come back. That would be weird. That would be bizarre if somebody wanted to just start washing my feet. This was part of, part of their tradition, part of their custom. We understand in part it was a way of refreshing somebody after a long, hot day. You've also got to think the way they ate is very different than us. We're not sitting at a table. No, instead, when they're eating, they're literally reclining. They're laying down next to each other, and here's the, here's the food in front of them, and they're eating it. Feet are really close to the food. You want to make sure that you've got clean feet when you're about to be eating your food. All of this is going on, and in a lot of households, if it was a rich household, they'd either have a servant that was paid or a slave that was given the job, of washing the feet. If you didn't have a servant or slave present, you'd designate someone in the household to wash the feet. Well, this was a room that they got for the evening and there wasn't someone present to wash the feet. Except you think, wait a second, there were 12 people there that had followed Jesus for three years. Don't you think someone, anyone would have said, hey, someone's got to do it. Someone's got to do it. But what do we see about these guys? You know, you go back to other parts of the Gospels and you see every time they get a chance, they're, they're jockeying for position. Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God? Where will my chair be in association to Jesus when we get to heaven? They're looking around and going, I'm not going to do it. That's a, I'm not doing it. Somebody's got to do this. But this isn't going to me. Jesus shouldn't have had to do this. But he did. He did. He laid aside his outer garment, taking the towel tied around his waist, and he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. You just think about this for a moment. The others should have done it, and they didn't. And then they watched Jesus get up, and he starts going through this. He, started, he takes off the outer garment. He takes the towel and then he starts washing feet. Just think about the timing of this, okay? 
12 disciples, 24 feet. What if it took about a minute per foot or even a minute per person? We're looking at nearly 15 minutes to a half hour. Plus then Peter has to start talking, so it extended it even more. This uncomfortable time of watching the master go from foot to foot to foot and wash the feet. Why did he do it? Well, if Jesus has a blue-collar theology, there's a job to be done. No one's stepping up. Someone's got to do it. How I feel about it is irrelevant. Got to bring home the paycheck. I'm just going to do the job because there's a job to be done. If it's a, if it's a baby boomer theology... No one is volunteering. They prefer the word volunteer to serve. Serve implies slave. Slave implies no control. Volunteer is, I'll do it my way. Thank you very much. No one's volunteering. Is this serve a great fit for me? Does this fit my, my wiring? Does it match my spiritual gift test? I took that 176-question spiritual gift test. Does, it, does this match that? Do I have the gift of helps? No, I have the gift of prophecy. I better stay away from feet. Who will mentor me? What if I get it all wrong? What if I don't wash feet right? I've never seen someone else do it before. I need mentoring. Will it build my platform? I don't know. Maybe get a, get a foot washing selfie here. There we go. All right. Insta, we're going crazy, right? Will it fulfill me? Will I find fulfillment washing 24 feet? Does anybody find fulfillment washing feet? Anybody? Jesus had a different motivation, and we should too. There's a verse in the Bible that's really familiar. We know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose, Romans 8.28. I wish we were as familiar with Romans 8.29 as we are with Romans 8.28. Just one verse later. For God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his son. God chose you, God chose me to become more like Jesus a little bit every day. So I can say, I'm more like Jesus tomorrow than I was yesterday. I'm always growing to be more like Jesus. So, truth be told, our serve is not about whether or not we'll find fulfillment. Our serve is not about whether it was the best fit. Our serve is not even about there's a job to be done and someone's got to do it. We serve like Jesus to become like Jesus. That's it. He says, I did this, you do this. We serve like Jesus to become like Jesus. The opportunity to serve is an opportunity to grow to become more like Jesus. So what was Jesus like in all of this? John 13 says that he recognizes that he's about to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the very end. Another way of translating that, having loved his own, he now showed them the full extent of his love. He had one motivation for serving and one alone. I love you, I love you, I love you. That's it. He had a love for the Father and he knew he was loved by the Father. He had a love for people and sometimes they didn't love him, but so what? It was all love. It was all love. Serving is an opportunity to grow in our love. 
It's an opportunity to recognize the love that God has given to us. It's an opportunity to show love for Jesus. And it's an opportunity to learn to love other people, even the ones who are unlovely, even the feet that are about to go to the temple and betray us. It's an opportunity to love. It's not an opportunity to feel fulfilled. It's not an opportunity to live out my best fit. It's not even an opportunity to just do the job. It's an opportunity to become like Jesus as we grow in love, grow in the ability to love, grow in depth of love. You heard it from Paul. You've heard it at, you know, at least 50 weddings, if not more. 1 Corinthians 13, if I speak in the tongue of men and angels, but I don't have love, I am just a racket. I'm a lot of noise. If I have prophetic powers, understand all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have all faith and can move mountains, but I don't have love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have love, I have gained nothing, nothing at all. It always, always, always comes back to love. We think it's about fulfillment. Do you think the Apostle Paul felt fulfilled sitting in a prison? We think it's about fulfillment. You think Jeremiah the prophet felt fulfilled sitting in a pit of dung? It's about love. It's about love. Second Corinthians chapter 5, Paul's talking about just telling the world about Jesus. Telling the world about Jesus. And verse 14, he says, either way, Christ's love controls us. Christ's love controls me in everything I do. I gave it to you in a bunch of different uh, translations. New Living and ESV go with Christ's love controls us. NIV and King, New King James go with Christ's love compels us. The way I learned it growing up, King James, the love of Christ constraineth us. We are compelled. We're constrained. We're controlled by the love of God. And if we're not compelled and constrained and controlled by the love of God, serving is teaching us how to be compelled and constrained and controlled by the love of God. Now, that word of is interesting because you could say, is it the love of God, God's love for me? Is it the love of God, my love of God? I think the answer is yes. It's both. Serving gives me the opportunity to receive and understand fully the love of God and to give love to God and to give love to other people as well. I surveyed it again just to see. You know I love the word compassion in the Gospels. You know I love the Greek word for compassion in the Gospels, splanknizomai. I think that's a great word, isn't it? You could say that and get junior hires laughing all day long. Splanknizomai, there you go. Somebody wrote the Greek word for compassion, splachnizomai, is a difficult word to translate because no one word captures its range of meaning completely. It's a cognate of the word for spleen and has the idea of, of deep emotions coming from deep places in one's being, like the bowels or the intestines. It conveys being deeply moved, having pity, having sympathy, having compassion, having warmth toward others. So he says this serving, this serving is totally motivated by I love God, God loves me and I know it, and I love people. I love, I have compassion, deep compassion for the people I'm serving. What blows me away is the number of times the Gospels reference 
the compassion, the splanknizomai of Jesus. Matthew chapter 9, he's just, he's just walking among the people. He's healing every kind of disease, every kind of illness. In verse 36, he says he saw the crowd and he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. This is so opposite of my reaction. When I see people confused and helpless, I go, get a clue. What's wrong with you? Jesus says, I love you in your helplessness. I love you in your confusion. I have compassion for you. And Jesus uses the serve to grow that compassion in me for the people that I look at that are helpless and confused and say, you should get a clue. Helps me to become like him. Feeding 5,000 people. They're hungry. They're really hungry. And it says that he had, he had compassion on the huge crowd and he healed them. In verse 14, just a chapter later in, in Matthew, chapter 15, now it's 4,000 people. And they've been with him for three days, and he has compassion for them because they're hungry, and they might faint along the way, so he has compassion for the crowd because they're hungry. Matthew chapter 20, he's, he's near Jericho, and there are these two blind guys, and they're just shouting out. They're shouting out. This was going on all the time. People in need all the time are along the road shouting out for help, shouting out for help, and you came to the point that you just, you ignored it. You ignored it because you heard it so often, and the shouting is happening. And the Bible tells us that the passage actually says, would you all just be quiet? Jesus is coming by. Well, they get even louder because they hear Jesus is coming by. What do you want me to do for you? Let our eyes open. It says Jesus had pity on them. Same word. Jesus had compassion on them. Touched their eyes and they immediately recovered their sight. Person with leprosy. Not only a skin disease, but separation from the community. I can't be near people I love. I can't go to the temple. I'm separated from everyone. I am alone. I am so alone. This person with leprosy comes to Jesus, begs, please, if you're willing Heal me, and get that next part, and make me clean. I want to be with people again. I want to be able to go to the temple again. I want to be part of the community again. Moved with compassion, Jesus reached out and touched the leper. I love that. He didn't zing him from across the, across the courtyard. Touched the leper. First touched that person that had probably in years. Moved with compassion. Moved with love. Matthew chapter 9. This boy, he's demon-possessed. He's convulsing. It's been happening ever since childhood. And you know what I love in this passage? It doesn't say Jesus had compassion on him. The father said, if you have any compassion, you'll free my son. He could have appealed to anything else. He could have appealed to his sense of fulfillment. Imagine what people will think of you if you heal my child. Imagine the reward you'll receive if you heal my child. If you cared... If you pity us, if you love us, please do this. He raises a widow's dead son. And I love in verse 13 because this one's just gushing. When the Lord saw her, his heart overflowed with compassion. Don't cry. I'm about to do a miracle here. Luke chapter 10, he's telling the story of the Samaritan. Why does the Samaritan stop to help? Moved with compassion. He felt the love, felt the love. John 15, 
He's talking about the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. The son has run away from the father, squandered everything, absolutely undeserving. And there's dad standing at the end of the road every day saying, I just hope I see my kid again. And the kid comes crawling back home and the dad runs to the kid, moved with compassion, filled with love and compassion. He ran to his son, embraced him and kissed him. His son recites why he should not love him. And the father says, we're going to have a party. You're whole. Moved with compassion. Luke 6, you must be compassionate just as your father in heaven is compassionate. You see, when, like me as a blue-collar kid, and this is where my tendency is, if my focus is on just getting the job done, I miss what God's trying to do in me. God's trying to grow compassionate me. He's not just clearing my list. He's trying to grow compassion in me. When I, as a, as a boomer, am focused on fulfillment and fit and all those other things, I'm missing what God is trying to do in me. God might take the worst fit and the most unfulfilling situation ever for my heart to finally, like the Grinch, grow. But I'm always so stuck with my fit and fulfillment that I'm missing out on an opportunity to grow in love, to grow in compassion. Let us love one another, for love is from God, and anyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. If there's anything the generation behind us needs to learn about serving... It's all about love, period. It's all about love. Tests and fit and fulfillment and getting the job done are all secondary. It's all about love, and it's all about what God is trying to grow in us. We think, we think we're serving to do a great work, and God is wanting to do a great work in us. When we're willing to just be moved, when we're willing to love well, when we're willing to love well, that's the point at which serving is at its finest. And so I hope that as you, as you look towards serving, as you look toward the serve, you'd stop asking the question, where can I serve best? Where will I find my best fit? Where will I find the most satisfaction? What needs to be done around here? that we'll focus less on that. In fact, we'll, we'll even take the word serve out of the equation altogether, and we'll just ask this simple question, how can I love well? How can I love well? What will, what will teach me to love well? I suspect if we take that approach, we're going to take on serves we never would have taken on based on our fit, and we never would have taken on based on fulfillment, or even that it needed to be done. We'll take on those serves because we know that Romans 8.29 says he chose me to become like his son and I'm not there yet. He's got some things he wants to grow in me and he's going to grow me through the serve. He's given me a chance to love well and so God I pray that you will, you will inspire us and challenge us to be great lovers. To look at our world and think about how, how can I receive your love best through this opportunity? How can I express my love for you best through this opportunity? And how can I express compassion from a heart that is sinful and selfish and, and, and is frustrated with people?
the creator of the universe, the creator of those feet, washed those feet out of love. Help us to love well. In the name of Jesus, amen. So we're doing a series on serving, and this is the question I don't want you to be asking. Where can I serve? Forget that question. Here's the question. How can I love well? How can I love well? In what situation, in what context has God placed me that I can love well? How can I love well? And I'll give you the ultimate challenge. Start at home. Oh, it's easy to think about serving a church. <laughs> Superhero. At home? <laughs> How can I love well at home this week? In what ways can I receive the love of God most fully? Can I express my love of God most intensely? How can I show these people that I have compassion on them? That I am moved with compassion. I've moved down to the depths of my being in love for them. And you're to about Wednesday and you're like, it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> because God's trying to teach us something in that too. Love well. Love well. That's his calling to us. So let's go live out the calling. See you next week.